He has offered life. Life in the person of Christ. This real person, this real reality, requires only that you embrace it. That you say, I've given up my way, and I'm going to choose your way. I've done it my way, and it led to the same death I've always been in. Jesus, I want to live. Save me. If you've received that gospel, then you have entered into a life that never ends. You've entered into a relationship that can never be undone. And we should declare that with joy. It makes us right with God. And eventually, in the end, it is going to be okay. Everything's going to be set straight. Everything's going to be good. But in the meantime, we're still in this time of the now and the not yet. We're stuck in this sinful world, this broken world. It is broken. But it will not always be broken. Jesus has already defeated sin. He's taken the penalty from us. He's canceled the power of this sin in us. So that we don't have to be in bondage. We don't have to be slaves anymore. His resurrection has sealed that for us. One day He will return to establish His throne. And then the very presence of sin itself will be gone. Because Jesus Christ is risen, those who believe have life in Him that cannot be taken away. Yet there's a tension between our celebration of victory and our experience of pain. Jesus entered our death to overcome death for all who will choose life in Him. That doesn't take the tension away, but it does mean that the celebration of victory has weight. It has merit. We're not just whistling in the graveyard. There is a reality, a truth that is bigger than your circumstances. It's bigger than your moment. It's bigger than anything. If Jesus was telling the truth that He is God in the flesh, that He is the one given all authority in heaven and on earth, then what could possibly compare to that? He backed it up. If He's able to rise up out of the grave, not, not be exhumed, but to literally rise, to be dead, and be reanimated to life, He has conquered death. I have heard people talk about Tom Brady as a quarterback a lot. Talk about how Father Time is undefeated. Eventually, everybody falls. Eventually, everybody gets old. And if we extend that out, eventually, everybody dies. Except Jesus. He's the resurrection and the life. So maybe Father Time, so to speak, isn't undefeated. He's got one loss. When Jesus rose from the dead, He secured for us a hope. It's our next point. The resurrection of Christ gives us hope for life 
both now and forever. The resurrection of Christ gives us hope for life both now and forever. In John 5.25, he calls himself the giver of life, but look at John 16.33. If you're still in Romans, back up to the book of John. Go past Acts. If you get to Luke, you went too far. We're going to go to John 16. I mentioned John 5.25, so before I join you in 16, I want to take a little side road. Starting with verse 24 of chapter 5, John writes, this is Jesus speaking, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to judge because He is the Son of Man. Eternal life by believing in Jesus. When you hear the Word and believe the Word, you take it into yourself and take ownership of it. You've crossed over from death to life. And yet, in John 16.33, Jesus, having just, <laughs> having just had His disciples say they believe, you're not, you're not speaking in parables anymore, this makes us believe that you came from God. And Jesus says, so you now believe? A time is coming and in fact has come when you'll be scattered, each to your own home. You'll leave me all alone, yet I'm not alone, for my Father is with me. Again, there's a tension. They believe, <laughs> and Jesus is saying, wait a minute. You think you believe, because in the moment you get it, in the moment it's easy. But it won't be. Verse 33, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you'll have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. When Jesus says this to them, what He is telling them is that this isn't about the easy path. It's not victory unto victory without any struggle along the way. In this world, you're going to have trouble. Specifically here, He tells them that they're going to be scattered. He's alluding to the persecution that they're going to face and the fear that will overtake them. I'm here to tell you, it doesn't have to be persecution for you to have fear and anxiety and difficulty and hardship that causes you to question God and maybe run away. True believer, you need to, as a friend told me recently, doubt your doubts and believe your beliefs. You need to take hold of that which you know to be true, that which is in God's Word, and when your understanding of your circumstances, when your five senses or your super smart brain tell you something else, that God really isn't going to come through, that's too much. God won't do that. I want to point you back to that empty tomb. 
Jesus said, take heart. I've overcome the world. Again, in the book of Romans, in chapter 5, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we've been made right with God by trusting in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith, by that trusting in His sacrifice for us, into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. There is a hope for the now and for the hereafter. Life both now and forever. Verse 3, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wades right into the depth of the tension between the victory and the pain. We glory also in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Take comfort, brothers and sisters, in this next portion. Since we have now been justified by His blood, We've been made right from our sin. We've been justified by Him when we are the ones who sinned against Him. He's the one against whom we have sinned. The penalty for our sin is due to God. The ransom isn't paid to the devil. He doesn't owe nothing. The ransom was paid to God. We owed our lives to God. Sin separated us from God, and He justified us while we were His enemies. If He did that for us while we were His enemies, since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if, we were, if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The picture that Paul is seeing here, that he's conveying here, is eternal salvation. God went out of His way while you were His enemy to send His only Son to die in your place. If He did that to make you His friend... How will He not follow up on that? How would He leave you in the end to fall away? That's unthinkable. But wait, there's more. Turn to Romans chapter 8.
man, I want to read this whole chapter for you, but I'm not going to. Having examined the reality of our eternal salvation, Paul continues to build his theological case throughout the book of Romans. And after a stop in in chapter 7, where he looks at his own sin and draws out that tension even in his own life between the celebration of victory and our experience of pain, even failure, he concludes in Romans 8.1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And he walks through this beautiful freedom that we have in Christ. And the power that we have in Christ to live according to the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Oh, man. But take a look at what happens in verse 18. He spent so much time talking about our future hope. Here, in verses 18 and following, he's making the connection, he's connecting the dots between that future eternal hope and our hope even now in the present. How in chapter 5 do we rejoice in our sufferings? We glory, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that God is doing something through them that has an eternal impact. When all of this fades away, there's a lasting impact. But notice... There's more. Verse 18 of chapter 8. Oh man, this is so exciting. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation, the physical realm, the physical world, was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. If you are in Christ, if you have received that that gospel good news that Jesus died for you and you have embraced this and made it your own, then you are a child of God forever. And what Paul is telling us right here, it'll be developed later in Thessalonians, we'll see it again really in Revelation, and we see it in, in the Old Testament prophecies of the future. The children of God will usher in the time when death and decay and entropy will cease. When Christ returns, all the physical laws change, and we're going to be part of that. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. There is a resurrection to come. You heard Jesus allude to it in John 5, that there is a time when we will receive this resurrection. But who hopes for For in this hope, verse 24, in this hope we were saved. Hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. The resurrection of Christ gives us hope for life both now and forever. 
Jump down to verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all. We just read that, didn't we? He loved us so much that He sent His Son to die for us while we were His enemies. He didn't spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? What good thing in this life is too much for God to give to you when He gave you His Son? The rest is small potatoes. That's our hope for now. If you're going through it right now, and and please please don't miss this. If you're going through it right now, God has ordained this for a season. Because in this suffering, He is producing something in you far, far greater than what the suffering itself is bad and wicked. I'm not telling you that God made this coronavirus come and have a pandemic. I'm not telling you that God gave you cancer. I'm not telling you that God chose and caused you to be betrayed by that loved one. I'm certainly not telling you that God caused you to sin or dragged you into that addiction. God's not tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone else. What I am telling you is that every single thing, because God is sovereign, every single thing that has occurred, or will occur, or can occur, has been sifted through His will. And He has decided that in this moment, in your life and in mine, that what we are facing is the best possible thing to accomplish the greater eternal purpose of making us like Jesus Christ. Sometimes suffering is needed for that. Jesus suffered. Why would His followers not? But it doesn't end. We are more than conquerors. Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither powers, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. This is the resurrection that we talk about. Paul goes into great detail in Romans chapter 15. For your homework, I would encourage you to to read the whole chapter. It's the most explicit chapter on resurrection, I think, that you'll find in Scripture. I'm just going to read some pieces from it. 
I'm going to start with verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. If it's another gospel, if you start twisting it, if you get away from the word of God, then all of your faith means nothing. Truth matters. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living at the time of the writing, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Verse 12, but it's preached that Christ, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Sadducees said that pretty regularly. Verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Check this. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. So is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But He didn't raise Him from the dead if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. He goes on to talk a lot about the resurrection. But it comes to a head in this idea that, that apart from the resurrection, there is no gospel. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then he was just another guy. Just a man, just a dude. And if that's true, then everything he said claiming to be God was a lie. If that's true that he didn't rise from the dead, and he was just a guy, just a man, then saying, I am the resurrection and the life, particularly to, to a grieving family, is the most heinous of lies. He told everybody, hit your wagon to me and I'll get you to heaven. There is no other way. There's no other option. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But if He did not rise from the dead, if this Sunday isn't Resurrection Sunday, then there is no gospel. And we're still working, trying to earn our way to God. We're still in our sins. The resurrection of Christ, however, gives us hope for life, both now and forever. This is the beauty. This is the joy. This is the power. I'll close this section with this point, and then we'll sing some more. Starting with verse 50. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. 
in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It is in the hope of resurrection that the church grew. It is in the hope of resurrection that we stand firm, that we do work on behalf of Christ. It is in the hope of resurrection because He was raised. And as God in His power raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will raise our mortal bodies also. This is why it was so important in the early church when they greeted one another, particularly at this Easter time. (coughs) Excuse me. But in greeting one another, they would recognize the resurrection. They would see one another and say, He is risen, and respond with, He is risen indeed. And they would emphasize it because Christ is, is risen. He is risen indeed. When we find the excitement of the resurrection, it changes things. There's a reality that changes our way of thinking. In Acts chapter 2, the things that Jesus had promised were fulfilled. We saw in Luke that Jesus said He would send what the Father had promised. In Acts chapter 1, the same writer records for us that Jesus told them that He would send the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 8 of chapter 1, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The same thing that He called them to at the end of Luke the same thing He commanded at the end of Matthew to go and make disciples, to tell what they saw, what they experienced. In chapter 2 of the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit does come on them and He fills them and He changes them in much the same way that He has filled us ever since. The Holy Spirit lives in those who follow Christ. And immediately upon this understanding that the Holy Spirit gives them, just as when Jesus breathed on His disciples in that, in that quiet place and said, receive the Holy Spirit, he, he called them to be witnesses then. In that same way, He has called us to be witnesses, to tell the world everybody ought to know who Jesus is. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. And those who believe have life in Him that cannot be taken away. 
Our last point as we close the service out today. The reality of the resurrection is bigger than anything else, period. The reality of the resurrection is bigger than anything else, period. This is what caused the gospel explosion in the book of Acts. If you're joining us for the first time today, we're in the middle of, or the first third, of uh, a series in the book of Acts called Impact World. And we've looked at the first five chapters here. Next week, we'll, we'll dive into chapter six. And as we've seen the church be born in chapter two and, and just explode right away, in chapter two, we see this explosion where the timid become weak and what has changed the Holy Spirit has brought their minds to a place where they realize the truth of what they have seen. They're not called to be salespeople. Jesus doesn't call us or them to be salespeople. He calls them to be witnesses. They didn't have to go out and come up with some clever plan, some clever evangelism method that can manipulate people's emotions and, and drag them in. Not some seeker-sensitive way of attracting people. Tell them the truth. Tell them what you saw. Tell them what you lived. What they saw, what they knew, what they were absolutely certain of is that Jesus Christ died for sinners and raised from the dead. Once you've seen that, where's the room for doubt? It changed them. <clears throat> when the Holy Spirit came on them, some people in this major gathering in, uh, in Jerusalem for the fe festival of Pentecost started mocking them, saying they were, they were drunk. Verse 14 of Acts chapter 2, Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what, to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. He goes on to tell them, from the Old Testament, using the prophet's words that David spoke of Christ. Verse 25, David said about him, Christ Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that, that the patriarch David died and was buried. His tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of it. 
exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you, see, what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? If you are in Christ right now, if you are in Christ right now, you are surrounded by people in your life, loved ones, co-workers, shoot, neighbors, passers-by, who are outside of that relationship and what you need to do is be a witness to them. You don't have to sell them. It's not your responsibility for them to believe. It's your responsibility to tell them the truth. If you have seen it, if you know it, then talk about it. <clears throat> Peter replied to those who did not know how to respond, Repent. Turn from your way to God's way. And be baptized. Be associated, affiliated with Christ and His church. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words He warned them and He pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Talk about a gospel explosion. The reality of the resurrection is bigger than anything else, period. People who know that cannot keep silent. My prayer for us today is that we would recognize that Jesus is risen. And because Jesus Christ is risen, those who believe have life in Him that cannot be taken away. That we would recognize Him as precious beyond all things. That we would recognize Him as King, seated above, enthroned in the Father's love, having overcome this world because He Himself is the resurrection and the life. Amen and amen.